my wife and I, my wife's name is Sarah, and my wife and I, we're not massive vacation people. Uh, we like them. We don't go on them all the time, though. Uh, we have one trip usually that we do every year. My, my parents buy, uh, buy, buy for the week. They rent uh, a few spots on a campground in the Okanagan. And so we all go up with the three kids and our spouses and the now seven or eight or whatever it is, grandkids and my parents. And it's a big, it's a mess basically is what happens for a week. Uh, but one year, a few years ago, uh, about three years ago now, my wife and I went to a place uh, called Hawaii, which is an amazing place. If you haven't been there, it's, it's great. Uh, we went to, in particular, I had a friend of mine who has timeshares at a place called the Koalina in Hawaii, and the place is stupid amazing. It's, it's the best place I think I've ever been in my life. My wife and I were there, and, and there was this amazing breakfast served every morning. My wife's a runner, and so she loved getting up early in the morning and just running as far as she could. And then her favorite part at the end of it was you just go straight into the warm ocean water at about 9 o'clock in the morning. And she would come back saying, it's hard to believe we're here. It's just so amazing, so, so marvelous. It's, it's hard to believe we're actually here. The reason why I, I want to paint that picture for you of this, of this thing so incredible that it's actually hard to believe it's actually real is because that's exactly the response of the disciples to the risen Jesus in the passage we're going to look at this morning. That, that they see him, but man, it was a hard to believe what they were actually seeing because of how fantastic the scene actually was. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to study Luke chapter 24. Uh, we're, you guys are, we're in a sermon series where we're doing some texts on the resurrection in Luke. And so we're, we're coming to an end in that, uh, small little series here. And so we're looking at Luke 24, just a bit of the context before we jump into the passage itself. Um, Jesus, the risen Lord had met two disciples on a road to a place called Emmaus and they didn't recognize him at first, but as he, uh, taught the word of God to them, as he, as he broke bread with them, they, they saw very clearly that this man in front of them actually was the risen Jesus of Nazareth, who was dead, but is now alive. And then we get to our passage, which is Luke chapter 24. So I'm going I'm to read the text, and then I'm going to give us our two big marvelous truths that are a bit hard to believe. Okay, so we'll read the text and then have, break it down to two points. So first of all, here's the text, Luke chapter 24, starting verse 36. As they were talking about these things, so the disciples who just saw Jesus on the Emmaus Road, they they were talking to the disciples about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me. And see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written 
that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You're my witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. That's God's word to us. Here's the two marvelous truths that we're going to look at from this passage. First of all, uh, that there's a sent spirit. And secondly, our physical future. So we're going to look at the sent spirit. And secondly, our, our physical future. So the first marvelous truth from this passage is the, the sent spirit. So uh, th- this passage has a distinctly Trinitarian feel to it. Here's why I say that. Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus says, And behold... So if you see the word behold in the Bible, you should probably pay attention. That's what the word's trying to get. Hey, look here, right? That's what he's saying. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now you might be thinking to yourself, uh, okay, where does it say spirit? I see the word promise. I see the word power. I don't... Where is the word Holy Spirit in there? Why are we talking about the Holy Spirit? Well, for Luke, he's using a phrase he's used before to to refer to the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1, verse 34 and 35, it's the scene when um, an angel comes to Mary and says she's going to be with child. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, a child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. See, for Luke, this idea of the power coming upon you is is what the Holy Spirit does. So later when he says, I'm going to give, I'm sending to you what the Father promised and you're going to receive this power. He's, He's referring to the Holy Spirit. Later on in the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, that was kind of part two of his gospel. He writes this in chapter one, verse eight. He says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, in our passage, Luke is, is writing Jesus' words that he's sending the promise of his father, which is going to clothe them in power. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. It's, it's a distinctly Trinitarian passage. And Jesus' words here show, show us um, a uniqueness about Christianity. See, see Christianity is not unique in the sense that we believe that there's a God. Christianity is unique because we believe that the God who is there is three in one. There there are lots of religions that believe there's one God. Uh, Islam believes that there's one God. Sikhism believes that there's one God. His name is Vahiguru. There's other religions that believe there's all kinds of gods. Hinduism has millions of gods. Christianity is, is unique in the sphere of world religions, on the spectrum of all the worldviews of, of how we got here and what we're here for and where we're going, Christianity is unique in saying there's one God who exists as three persons. So, so don't buy the coexist bumper sticker that's trying to sell you this idea that, look, they're all the same, basically, right? Each little letter is a religious symbol of one of the major world religions saying it's all the same. 
they all believe something and be a good person. Christianity is distinct from every other worldview in the sense that we believe that there is one God who eternally exists as three persons. The reason why we know this is because through salvation history, God has revealed himself to his people as one God who exists in three persons. I want to prove this to you, okay? I want to prove this to you because sometimes I think that as Christians, if you've grown up in the church a lot, sometimes we don't think very much about the Trinity because it's hard to believe. So, so we don't talk a lot about it. Maybe you're newer to the faith and you're trying to figure out how Christianity is distinct. So whether you've been here for a while or you're brand new here, I, w- I want to walk through how the scriptures talk about this very unique, distinct Christian doctrine called the Trinity. So this is going to feel a bit like a Bible study or theology class, but we'll get through it. Okay, I promise. If you get lost and you fall out of your chair, someone will pick up, put you back in. We'll, we'll get through it. I, I really want to try to persuade you that, that Christianity has at its core this doctrine of the Trinity. One of my favorite theologians, his name is Fred Sanders. He wrote in a book called The Deep Things of God these words. The gospel is Trinitarian, and the Trinity is the gospel. Christian salvation comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity, and brings us home to the Trinity. And the reason why we know who God is, that he is Trinity, is because he has revealed himself to us through salvation history. So, so the first way God reveals himself to us through salvation history is, is by God uh, revealing himself as a promising God. If you've been with us for the last few months, you, you'll know we walked through a sermon series called Abe, where God comes to Abram. And he makes him all kinds of promises. Genesis chapter 12, this promising God comes to Abram, who God is going to start his plan of redeeming a people through Abram. And here's what God says to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Genesis chapter 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. What Abe has is a revelation of the God who is there being a promising God. That's all he knows of him. That there's a God there who has made me a promise. That's the first part of what we know about who this God is that's revealed himself to us, is he's a promising God, which leads us to a question, though. What is this promising God's name? So so we know there's a God who makes promises, but but what's his name? What what, what do we call him? Well, in Exodus, uh, what we have is, is we have Abraham's offspring. So the people who come out of Abraham's family line, they, they were supposed to be a blessing to the nations, but they found themselves being oppressed by the nations. They, they found themselves in slavery in Egypt, crying out to this promising God who said he's going to give them a land and make them into a people, pr- crying out to this God for deliverance. And God decides to initiate a rescue plan by bringing these people out of Egypt and into freedom. The way he does it is through this guy named Moses. And God comes to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, and reveals to him what his name is. This promising God who made promises to Abram. What's his name? Exodus chapter 3. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? Moses is saying, Look, you're sending me to these people to save them. If they're like, Okay, who sent you? What, what do you want me to say? What's the answer? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel. If they ask you what my name is, say this. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I will, am remembered to be remembered throughout all generations. That, that word Lord in our Bibles, if you read it in your hard copy Bible, you'll probably see a capital L and then a smaller case, but still capital O-R-D. That's the personal name of God, Yahweh. So Moses says, hey, I'll go save them. I'll go redeem them if you want me to. But if they ask what your name is, what do I tell them? And he says, my name's Yahweh. Tell them my name's Yahweh. I am who I am. See, this is remarkable to think that Abram did all that he did. Remember the sermon series we were in? Abraham had faith in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abram did all of that. He didn't even know the God's name. But Moses knows God's personal name. It's Yahweh. God's people didn't always know his name, but now they do because God revealed it to them. Exodus chapter 6, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, I'm Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. See, this promising God has a name. His name's Yahweh. His people didn't always know that, but now they do in the account of the Exodus. Which leads us, I think, to another question, though. If we're talking about the Trinity and now we're talking about Yahweh, is Yahweh the Trinity? Because in the Old Testament, it's really clear that Yahweh is one, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, one of the most famous passages in the Bible where God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So he's one. We got that. So where are you getting this Trinity idea from then? Well, in the Old Testament, there's um, hints and suggestions that the one God, Yahweh, might also actually exist in, a, in some sort of a plurality. Here's some passages that, that suggest that. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So people have been asking for a while, what, was God hovering over the water or was the spirit of God hovering over the water? There seems to be a plurality going here. It's not totally clear, but seems like it. Or Genesis 1 verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What, what, what do you mean us? What do you mean our? I thought the Lord was one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But it seems that this one God exists in a plurality. It's not clear, but it suggests that. Or Psalm 110 is another example where David writes, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, which is another word, Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, so David has this picture. David, the king of Israel, says that the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. Sorry, who, who's above you, David, in the pecking order? No one. But, but Yahweh says to Adonai, so what's going on here? What, 
It's clear that Israel believes that God is one. But it seems like this one God might also exist in some sense of a plurality. Uh, People have talked about the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament, um, like walking into a dark room. The Old Testament is kind of like walking into a, a room where the lights are very dim and you can't see really well. But the reality is, is that the Trinity is there. You just need someone to turn on some lights so that that can actually be made clear to us. Well, cue Jesus. The necessity of the incarnation for knowing God truly is just that, that Jesus is God with us to save us. That that Jesus comes into the dark room and says, look, I'm going to show you what the eternal God is actually like. Here's what I'm supposed to do. In Matthew 1, verses 20 to 23, the angel's coming and making promises about who this Jesus is going to be. And and the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for or because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus comes in the incarnation, comes as God enfleshed, as God with us to save us. He turns the light on in the dark room where the Trinity exists, and he says, hey, I'm God. Let me show you who I am. And the scriptures make it really, really clear that that Yahweh is one God who eternally exists as father and son. This is what Jesus was getting, people getting so mad at Jesus about. It's him saying, I'm equal with the father. John chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And then Jews picked up stones again to stone him. See, they didn't miss his point. Jesus is saying, I'm God. The the father and I too are one God. And the Jews hear this and their response is that's blasphemy. So they pick up stones and they're ready to kill him because of this claim. See, it was really clear that Jesus is making the point. I'm trying to burst light into this dark room and show you that Yahweh is father and son. But now the question is, okay, but two doesn't make a trinity, right? Makes a duity or something. So, so, so what about the trinity? Well, th- this is where we see the necessity of the Holy Spirit's arrival for knowing God truly. It's why it was necessary for Jesus, the risen Lord, to say to his disciples, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you because seeing that the Spirit is God is necessary for actually understanding who God truly is. See, the Father sent the Son, and the Father and Son sent the Spirit. John 14 makes it really clear that the Father sends the Spirit. He says, Jesus says, I'll ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you. So so the father is going to send you another helper. That that word another is another of the same kind. So a helper that's just like me, the father is going to send to you. 
But it's also clear that Jesus sends the Spirit, right? Our text today, Luke 24, 49. And behold, pay attention, Jesus says. I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. So look, if the Son was sent to be God with us to save us, if if that's what his role is, then what's the role of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we know now that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but what is the Spirit supposed to do? Well, two things, at least. First, the the Holy Spirit empowers gospel proclamation. People don't speak the gospel truly without the Holy Spirit empowering them to bring those words out of their mouth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Look, I, I dare you this week to look through the book of Acts and just circle every time the Holy Spirit fills someone, and you'll see right after or very nearby the language of they spoke. It's what the Holy Spirit does when he fills you. It's so that you can speak out gospel truth. That's part of the role of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just to help people proclaim. The Holy Spirit enables us to actually believe the gospel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul's writing and he says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen or ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things, the message of salvation, what God is up to in the world, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of, of God. Here's what Paul's saying. Look, we have this message about who Jesus is. And, and we preach this message and people hear it and they say, so wait, here's what you're telling me. You're, you're saying that Jesus of Nazareth was God enfleshed who came for the purpose to save us from our sins. And if we trust him, we'll have assurance of eternal life. And Paul says, that's my message. And the people hear it and they say, that's ridiculous. That's the silliest news I've ever heard. See, they understood, they comprehended Paul's message. They just thought it was crazy. Paul's cuckoo. But Paul, Paul's saying, look, the only reason why we believe is because the Spirit enabled us to do so. The Spirit helped us understand. See, the Spirit helps empower gospel proclamation. The Spirit also enables belief in the gospel. Jesus bursts light into the room of who Yahweh actually is, and the Spirit opens our eyes to see this truth truly. That there's been one God for all eternity, and this one God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's hard to believe, but it's a marvelous truth. See, Jesus comes to his disciples when he's leaving them, and he says in Matthew's account, he says, look, I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The one name. Baptize them in the one name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's three and that's one. See, Moses was sent to deliver God's people in the name of Yahweh. 
Jesus says, I want you to make disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, the doctrine of the Trinity is essential. It's core to Christianity. You don't have to understand it perfectly or be able to articulate it perfectly. But if you reject it, you're outside of the realm of Christian right belief. See, every Christian's on a spectrum of basically not understanding the Trinity from like not understanding it at all to not understanding it mostly. So, so the, the bar is not perfect understanding of the doctrine because it's a mystery. The, the bar is don't reject this because if you reject that God existed as Trinity for eternity, what you're doing is you're outside the fold of Christian faith. It's what makes Christianity Christianity. And see, it's the doctrine of the Trinity that makes us realize another important thing which is that God didn't actually need to save us to be, have a relationship or to be fulfilled. The doctrine of the Trinity makes Jesus coming to save people for himself scandalous. Because have you heard there's songs that say um, God didn't want heaven without us. He couldn't imagine heaven without relationship. Well, God has always existed in relationship. He didn't need to save people to have, have a loving relationship. He had that eternally existing in the Trinity in what Fred Sanders calls the happy land of the Trinity. God, God was perfectly content being God eternally triunely. And yet he chooses to chase after rebels who hate him. He chases after sinners who say, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you say. I want to live my own life. And this God who doesn't need to save to have relationship gives up his life to save us. And that makes the gospel a scandal. He didn't need to do it. His prime directive in the world was not to save sinners. His prime directive in the world is to reveal himself to his creation. That's why God has done whatever God has done is to reveal who he is. And we haven't always known this, but now we know that the God who is there is Trinity. That's, that's who he is. The gospel is Trinitarian and the Trinity is the gospel. Christian salvation comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity and brings us home to the Trinity. It's what makes Christianity Christianity. This passage teaches us a marvelous truth that's hard to believe that Jesus sent the spirit and in the sending of the spirit. Now we know who God truly is. He's father, he's son, and he's Holy spirit. Here's the second marvelous truth that comes from this passage. That's a little bit hard to believe. And it's that our art is that we have a physical future. So uh, the resurrected Jesus is, is physical. The whole first part of this passage was all about uh, Luke 24, verse 36 through 40. As the disciples were talking about these things with the people who saw Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself stood among them, like out of nowhere, said to them, peace to you. But they, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, he's commanding them. And my feet, that, that it's I myself, that the person you see in front of you is Jesus of Nazareth. T Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. See, Jesus is commanding his disciples 
to, to actually touch and see with their own eyes and hands the reality that is before them. Because he knows it's a bit hard to believe, right? Remember when your buddy from high school was like, hey, I found a girlfriend. And they were like, no way, man. He was like, her name's Dawn. And you were like, you're lying, Matt. Show her to us. We, we want to see her. We, we want to be able to shake her hand. Until we do that, it's basically a made-up story. Jesus is saying, all right, I'm proving it to you. T- touch me. See me. What I am is Jesus of Nazareth. I'm risen again, and I'm physical. I'm in, I'm in flesh, just like I once was before. See, the resurrected Jesus is physical. And some of my favorite verses in Scripture are Luke 24, 41 through 43. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. Don't you love that phrase? They're not disbelieving because they're like, no, no, no. They're disbelieving because they're like, that's amazing. While they disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. See, we don't laugh at that because we feel like that's irreverent, right? This is teenager Jesus coming back to his parents' house, being like, hey, I'm risen. You guys got anything in the fridge? No? Any Fanta I can drink? No, we got some broiled fish we heat up in the microwave. He's like, do it. Why is he doing this? Because he's proving to them that, look, I'm real. I can eat real food because I'm real. The resurrected Jesus is Physical. See, this is a direct contradiction of, of what one of the common views was um, in the ancient world after hearing the story about Jesus, which was basically this idea that, that he never actually became fully human. He was just kind of this like spirit. The, 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 the word for it, the heresy for it is called docetism. It's just this word that means basically that he was just this spirit. He was this apparition. He was this ghosty kind of thing. He wasn't like flesh and bones. That's crazy. See, what Luke is proving, what what the early apostles were going out of their way to prove was that this Jesus who lived and who died is not dead anymore. We saw him. We touched him. He drank my Coca-Cola. We hung out with him. The resurrected Jesus is physical. And he still is. There's two implications of the physicality of Jesus' resurrection that I I think are worth thinking through for us. The first one is that the historic, physical resurrection of Jesus is the rubric by which we test the claims of Christianity. So so if you're um, maybe a skeptic to Christianity, or you're, you're new to Christianity, or you've been a Christian for a long time, but you have a lot of doubts about a lot of parts of the Bible... How do I unpack, you know, what, what science teaches with creation accounts? How, how do I unpack this idea of, of the existence of God and the problem of evil? How, how do I answer all of these very real, very, very worthwhile questions? That, that, that's a good pursuit, but, but none of those answers form the basis, the foundation for the truthfulness of the claims of Christianity. The only rubric by which you t- test the faithfulness of the doctrine of Christianity is, is Jesus dead or not? The physical resurrection of Jesus is the rubric to test the claims of Christianity. It's not enough to just have this like really strong belief in your heart that it happened. Right? This idea that, oh no, like I believe Christianity is true because like, look how much I feel it. 
like on a feeling scale of like one to 20, I'm like a 19. Like I feel it so much. Our feelings are not a great indicator of whether something's true or not. Like you, you can walk into temples and into other world religious services where people's feelings are as tangibly real as yours in your worship service. They're, they're not lying about what they're experiencing. See, our, our feelings are fickle, but the resurrection of Jesus is physical. If it happened, what he said is true. If it didn't happen, we're wasting our time. 1 Corinthians 15 makes this case. Paul writes, if Christ was, has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, Paul is laying everything on the burden of, of the physical resurrection of Jesus. If it happened, it's true. If it didn't, we're wasting our time. The physical resurrection of Jesus is the standard by which to test the claims of Christianity. The, the skeptics have known this for decades and for centuries. You might know the name Lee Strobel. He wrote the book called The Case for Christianity. Lee's wife came to faith. Uh, he, he was an atheist agnostic. He was an award-winning journalist and, and a newspaper editor. His wife came to Christianity during their marriage and um, he didn't love that. <laughs> so he wanted to try to disprove it. So as a good journalist, he sought out all the different sources that he could about this to try to figure out what the real scoop was. Here's what Lee wrote. In short, I didn't become a Christian because God promised I would have an even happier life than I had as an atheist. He never promised any such thing. Indeed, following him would inevitably bring divine emotions in the eyes of the world. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. That meant following him was the most rational and logical step I could possibly take. Right. Because if he's dead, we should go home. You shouldn't come to the vision night. You shouldn't give any money to the offering. You shouldn't spend time worshiping. You shouldn't serve at coffee team or kids ministry because it's all a colossal waste of time if Jesus is dead. But if he's not dead, then man, believing what he said is the most rational, logical thing you could possibly do because it accords with what is actually real. So look, if you're a doubter or a skeptic or you're struggling in your faith, chase down this one line and see if it leads to truth or not. Here's the second implication of the physical resurrection of Jesus, though. Is that believers are actually promised a physical future. We're promised a resurrected body like Jesus. See, I don't know if you were like me uh, growing up. Um, I, I dreaded heaven. Right? When people would talk about heaven, I was like, oh, man. I mean, I'm glad it's not like the worst option. But like, I don't know. The Philadelphia cream cheese commercials weren't that riveting for me. <laughs> Just sitting on a cloud, hanging out, eating cream cheese. I didn't like cream cheese. But like, what's the point? 
I wanted to hang out with my friends. I wanted to eat pizza. I wanted, I didn't know this at the time, but I want to go to the Koalina. Every day I wake up thinking, am I at the Koalina? No, nope, not the Koalina. Okay, still here. But look, one of the reasons why I think we're dreading heaven and why we feel like, eh, it's not actually going to be that great is because we fundamentally misunderstand what our future actually looks like. It's not a cream cheese future. It's a physical future. First Corinthians 15, again, Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That, that language of first fruits is an agricultural image of the farmer going out to the harvest to see if it's ready. And he goes out and he picks part of the harvest. And he comes back with the very real, very tangible example of what's yet to come in the harvest. He's, Look, blueberries. They're out there. They're real. Jesus' resurrected body is the first fruits of what we will receive as believers. Tangible physical, pass me the Fanta kind of bodies. Look, our future is physical. And not just our physical bodies in the cream cheese setting, but, but on the renewed earth. This is what Romans 8 argues, uh, verses 19 through 21. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for their resurrection bodies. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, creation hears the gospel that Jesus lived and he died and he rose again and he offers the promise of a physical future of eternal life for everyone who believes. And creation says, I want in. I'm broken. I'm I'm corrupting. Look, as as beautiful as Hawaii is, the version of Hawaii we see right now is the corrupted and decaying one. There's a renewal yet to come for creation itself. We want to spend all our money now going to Whistler. But it's the decaying one. For, For eternity, physical bodies will be able to enjoy a physical Whistler if we believe in the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel hope that we have. Our, our future is not the Philadelphia cream cheese commercial. It's, it's, it's stuff like the Koalina. It's stuff like engaging in the arts. It's, it's playing in sports. It's watching film. It's having food. It's hanging out with friends. That's our future. I was driving this week uh, on the main road of our townhouse complex. And there's a few houses back to back of people that my wife and I are very good friends with. We, we love hanging out with them. And then I was driving down the street and I was like, man, I don't know any of these people. Like I know like three of the families and I love being able to see them and hang out with them and eat food with them and do life with them. And the rest of the people I'm like, yeah, I don't really know what it's like. And then I had this image of man, eternity is going to be like driving by townhouse complexes the whole time and thinking, I, I want to be with all these people that, that these people are my people. We should have a barbecue. We should go to the pool. We should go play baseball. And we will. Because our future is physical. Because Jesus' resurrection was physical. Everything hangs on it. And look, I know it sounds hard to believe. 
but it's marvelously true. And the way we get to that physical future is by believing the message that Jesus sent his apostles to be witnesses of. That message is in Luke 24, 45, and 47. Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Listen, if, if we repent of our sin, our forgiveness of sins is real and our future is certain. You can have this future. This hard to believe but marvelously true future could be yours if you repent and believe the gospel. Spirit, help us. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for what it shows us about who you are, who you've always been. And it gives us hope. I pray now that you would, by your spirit, move us to trust you. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, but, but would you persuade us? Would you woo us? Would you, would you move us to trust in our Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, and for the future that will be physical yet to come? We don't deserve any of this, but you offer it to us. It's hard to believe, but it's true. Help us believe in our Lord's name we pray.